When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Three, two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer, Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we Episode 307 of the podcast of the Super America, the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. It is Monday, October 19th, 2020, people. I hope everybody had a great weekend. And as we've done over the last couple weeks, this is going to be a busy, action-packed Monday episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. So many games to get into, so many games to break down. Here is a very, very, very brief rundown as we get into today's show. We will obviously open with the biggest game of the weekend, the biggest game of the season so far, Alabama playing Georgia. It went a lot like those other Alabama-Georgia games in recent years. Alabama wins convincingly. But I do want to talk about it from Alabama's perspective because I think in the big picture, there are some interesting things to think about in terms of who can actually beat this team, if they can even be beaten in SEC play. We will then transition to the Georgia side of things. I will then talk about what I believe to be probably the best story in college football right now, which is the Arkansas Razorbacks beating Ole Miss, improving to 2-2 two and two, uh, in, a, in a year where they were coming off back-to-back seasons where they did not win a single SEC game. They now have two SEC wins this season, more than they had in the last three seasons combined. Incredible. What we will then do, I did it last week and I like the way that it worked out. We will take a quick break. I'll throw in a five-second transition uh, sound effect, and we will get to the rest of the day. I do want to talk Kentucky-Tennessee, a huge game from both perspectives. From Kentucky side of things, their first win in Knoxville in forever, an incredible day for that program as they continue to rack up milestones under Mark Stoops, a disastrous day for Tennessee, and I do think this is kind of a crossroads moment for this entire program. It felt like things got turned around. Round. Instead, it's going back in the wrong direction really quickly as they enter a very tough part of their schedule with Alabama coming up next week. We will talk a little Clemson. We will talk a little Florida State, maybe a little Notre Dame, Louisville, and we will get out of here. lot to get into, not a lot of time. So very briefly, before we get started, want to remind everybody, make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You could do it on iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts. Please make sure to subscribe to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Give us a quick five stars. really does help us move up those iTunes charts. We got a new one in. I'll read it another time. We got too much to get into today. But make sure that you're not only subscribed, but also rating and reviewing the show as well. As I tell you every week, if you can, make sure to find me on all the social media platforms. It does help get word out about this show. Uh, Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. If you're on Instagram... 
Aaron Torres Pod, all kinds of cool pictures, graphics, previews, things of that nature. Uh, Aaron Torres Pod on Twitter, uh, Facebook, Aaron Torres Writer, and uh, YouTube. A lot of stuff going up on YouTube, so make sure to find me there as well. And by the way, for you hoop heads, uh, we will be getting back into basketball here as we enter late October into early November. Got a couple coaches, friends of the show that'll be coming back on here as we get set for basketball. So, a lot to get into with basketball, but today is about football. And with that said, people, no more time to waste. Let's get into it, and let's get into not only the biggest game of the weekend, but obviously the biggest game of the college football season so far. Number three, Georgia, at number two, Alabama. And it's kind of crazy, how, like, like everything that happened since the last time I recorded. If you remember, Thursday's episode was obviously recorded late Wednesday night. Uh, and at that time, so much uncertainty about that game. Nick Saban had just been ruled out for the game. At that point, we didn't even know how healthy he was. He said he was asymptomatic. We didn't know if he'd be able to coach this week. We didn't know if he'd be able to coach next week against Tennessee. We didn't know if uh, anybody else in the building had it besides him and his AD, Greg Byrne. Was Steve Sarkeesian going to be okay? Were the players going to be okay? Was this game going to get canceled? Instead, the game goes off without a hitch, and not only does it go off without a hitch, it goes off with Nick Saban on the sidelines. You guys all follow the story. I don't need to spend too much time here, but you start hearing late Friday that Nick Saban, after testing positive on Wednesday, he had had a follow-up test on Thursday, tested negative, had a follow-up test on Friday, tested negative, and at that point, you start to get the feel that this guy, Saban, might actually be on the sidelines on Saturday. That's exactly what happens. He gets cleared to coach about 10 a.m. Uh, Pacific time, 1 p.m. Eastern, and it's on like Donkey Kong. And I will tell you, after everything that Alabama had been through, when I saw Nick Saban walk through that tunnel, I just didn't see any way that they were losing that game. And they didn't. They dominated, they were awesome, and they win convincingly over Georgia, the final score, 41-24. Now, in terms of the game itself, listen, I could get into every little thing, and I'll get into a lot of it here in a minute, but it essentially went as I told you it would go, and I'm not going to lie, all my picks weren't great this weekend. I picked Tennessee to beat uh, Kentucky, I picked some other games that stunk, but this one basically went exactly as I said that it would on Thursday's show. Georgia plays great defense, but the bottom line remains that they have a former walk-on at quarterback. Stetson Bennett is a great story, and we'll get into him in a minute. But at some point, when you play Alabama, you have to be able to pick up yards and make plays yourself on offense. It doesn't matter how good your defense is because Alabama is so talented on offense. They have so many skill position guys that are playmakers and difference makers that when you look at what's going on at Alabama, the bottom line is if you can't score, if you can't put up points, if you can't make plays yourself, even if your defense is phenomenal, at some point, the dam is going to break. At some point, they're going to break one of these big plays, and that's exactly what happened in this game. So when I look at this game, first of all, shout out to Alabama. It was a battle of attrition, and Alabama came out of this one uh, on the right side of things when it was all said and done. Final score, 41-24, as I said. Here's the catch, though. 
it was 24 to 20 at halftime. Alabama's defense actually stepped up, didn't give up a single point after intermission, and then the floodgates opened. They scored a bunch. They had a bunch of big plays, just like I said they would, and they end up winning going away. They shut out Georgia in the second half. They outscore them 21-0, and they win convincingly, and Nick Saban's triumphant return to Bryant-Denny Stadium. Now, as we look at this game beyond the final score, beyond what happened, uh, a few big-picture thoughts. First of all, I just want to say this before we get back into the semantics of the game. But one, Nick Saban, when he was talking about this game post-game, got very emotional, or about, about as emotional as Nick Saban can get, talking about how proud he was of the players for handling the adversity of this past week. And really quickly, before we go any further, I want to give a shout out to everybody across college football, because I don't think we as fans understand everything that everyone in college football is going through at this exact moment. The players getting tested every, you know, sometimes every single day, sometimes three times a week. You get tested, well, you, you're test negative, but you were in the room with this guy and you got to go quarantine. Um, you know, you can't do the normal things that you do as a college student. On top of that, you got to go to class, you got to get your grades, you got to go to practice, you got to be responsible. The coaching staffs, day to day, they don't know who's available and who is not available. They don't know if they will be available. They don't know if a coordinator will be available and somebody else is going to have to call plays. And so as we talk about the college football season as a whole, I just want to take a moment, use Alabama as a launching point, and just give so much credit to everybody that is working so hard. It drives me insane that every time we get a negative or a positive test, every time uh, a player has to sit out, a game gets postponed, the same seven or eight media members rush to social media, this is proof of this, this is proof of that. How about we celebrate all the teams that are doing it right? How about we appreciate how hard everybody is working to get games on the field for our entertainment? Because I think that we need to acknowledge, rather than worrying about the one or two games that's getting postponed every week, let's celebrate the 20 to 30 that are being played. Let's celebrate the 20 or 30 that are doing things the right way, You know, 20 or 30 games featuring 50 or 60 teams that are doing things the right way. It's funny, if you remember back to, I guess it was probably July or August, I had Cole Kublik on this show, and we talked about what these programs were doing behind the scenes, how hard they were working, and I think I'm going to have Cole back on this week uh, kind of to do a pseudo-victory lap as we get set for Big Ten football, but Cole is also in those locker rooms, and he knows how hard everybody is working. So very quickly, I wanted to use Alabama as a jumping off point because imagine preparing for the game of the season, the biggest game that some of these guys will ever play or have ever played into this point, and all of a sudden, you find out that your coach might not be there. The reason you came to Bama, he's not by your side in the biggest game. He ended up being okay, but I want to give credit to everybody, not just at Alabama, but at all these SEC schools that are doing it right. Uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, LSU, whoever, who are doing the things that need to be done, not just them, in the smaller conferences as well. But anyway, let's get back to the game because now I'm just rambling. But I thought that was important because I think we're at now about the 40% point of the season and we need to acknowledge how hard everybody is working to stay on the field. So now that we've done that, let's get into the game itself. And when I look at the big picture of the Alabama-Georgia game, a couple things come to mind. First of all, 
Can we stop with the Mac Jones slander in college football, okay? For so long, every time this kid comes up, it's, oh, he's a game manager. Oh, he's a backup. Oh, he's two as this. People, for people who follow college football religiously, uh, Alabama signed a five-star quarterback in last year's recruiting class, and there was kind of this belief that, well, Mac Jones is just a placeholder until this kid Bryce Young gets ready. Well, guess what? That ain't happening. Mac Jones is awesome. Think about the stats that Mac Jones has put up throughout this season, and more specifically, what he did on Saturday night against the best defense that he will probably face in his entire college career. 24 of 32, that's 75% completion, baby. 417 yards, four touchdowns. Guess what? Third straight 400-yard game as the Alabama starting quarterback dating back to the A&M game, then Ole Miss last week, and now Georgia not only put, puts up 417 points against, 417 yards against Georgia, but he does it um, you know, on a huge stage, he's super efficient, he plays really well, and he is the reason that Alabama won that game. I go back to last year, even the bowl game, he was awesome. Early in the season, he was awesome. Now, 400 yards in three straight games. Guess what? In all the games that Tua started at Alabama, and shout out to Tua who got his first uh, NFL playing time on Sunday as the Dolphins routed the Jets, um, in Tua's entire Alabama career, he threw for 400 yards three times total. Matt Jones has done it three games in a row. Unbelievable credit to him. And it's also a testament, by the way, to that skill position talent that Alabama has, which is just unbelievable, okay? Jalen Waddell, uh, the wide receiver there, I believe he may be the best wide receiver in college football. Combination of speed, athleticism, route running. I don't claim to be some X's and O's guru, but that kid is unbelievable. And to do it against that Georgia defense the way that Jalen Waddell did on Saturday night, six catches, 161 yards, almost 27 yards a catch, unbelievable. Devontae Smith, 11 catches as well. It also brings up to me a very fascinating point, which is, did Alabama maybe have the best defense or best offense in the history of college football last year when you think about the fact that they had two first-round draft picks at wide receiver in Henry Ruggs, who's now with the Las Vegas Raiders, and with Jerry Judy, who's now with the Denver Broncos, with Tua, with these two guys, and Najee Harris. It's something worth considering. I had somebody bring this up to me on set on Sunday. Has any team ever had four first-round picks at the wide receiver position? Because that's what it looks like Alabama had last year with Jerry, Jerry Judy and Henry Ruggs, who have already been first-rounders, and now Jalen Waddell and Devontae Smith, who appear to be on their way as well. The closest I could come up with, by the way, shout-out to me. I did some research here. 2000 uh, Miami Hurricanes had Santana Moss, Reggie Wayne, and Andre Johnson in the same season, Alabama may have four wide receivers off last year's team uh, that are going to be first-round picks. And so Alabama, I believe, might actually, and this sounds crazy if you're a college football fan, I think Alabama might have the most explosive offense in college football. When you talk about quarterback play, running back play, and all these wide receivers that can make plays, and that really brings me to what I would say is the big, broad overarching theme about this weekend and this game specifically and that's this 
it is going to take a very unique team to beat Alabama in college football this season. It is going to take a team that not only plays elite defense the way that Georgia does, but also has skill position talent and a quarterback that is dynamic that can go score for score with Alabama. And if you look at Alabama in the big picture, it sounds crazy. It feels like the season just started. But I think we can pretty much already pencil in Bama for one of the college football playoff bursts, assuming nothing crazy happens injury-wise and knock on wood, nobody would ever root for that. But when you look at Alabama, think about it like this. It's possible, it's likely probable that they have already played the two toughest games on their schedule, which were Texas A&M and Georgia. Because if you think about the rest of the SEC, everybody else got a stakes. LSU is terrible. Tennessee doesn't have a quarterback right now. Um, You know, Auburn is terrible. Now, I do think Arkansas plays really good defense, but can they keep up with that offense? I don't think so. I think Kentucky plays phenomenal defense, forcing six turnovers against Mississippi State the other day and then five or whatever it was against Tennessee. I don't think they have enough offense to keep up with Alabama, and Kentucky does get Alabama this year. And so I bring it up because I already think that Alabama has played the two toughest teams on their schedule, and regardless of who they get in the SEC championship game, I don't see how that team can stay with Alabama play for play, score for score. It's very likely we're going to get a rematch with Georgia, and we just saw what happened against Georgia, and even if it's Florida, I don't think Florida plays good enough defense to keep up with Alabama. And so when I think about things in the big picture, it sounds crazy. I don't want to rush forward all the way to the playoff in December after Christmas. There's a lot of good college football left to be played. I just don't know how many teams can beat Alabama. Because on the one hand, yeah, they're still going to face a couple teams with really dynamic offenses like Ole Miss. But those teams don't have the defense to keep up. And then, like I said, they might face a, real, a team with a really dynamic uh, defense like Georgia, like Texas A&M, who they've already faced, but they're not going to have the offensive playmakers to keep up. And so when I look at Alabama, I don't want to boil down their season, but when I'm trying to figure out who can actually beat this team, there's only two teams that come to mind. One is Clemson. Don't know if you heard, Clemson's pretty freaking good. 73 points against Georgia Tech, but they obviously have a difference maker at quarterback that can absolutely go score for score with Alabama. And of course, they're really, really good on defense as well, as they showed a few weeks ago against Miami. The other one in theory is Ohio State, but we haven't even seen Ohio State, and we don't even know if they're going to make the playoff because, as I've discussed on this show many times, if they only play, say, six, seven, eight games, they're scheduled to play nine, but we're seeing games get canceled left and right. If they only play seven or eight, what is their resume going to be like for the playoff committee? So I'm not trying to rush through this season. I'm not trying to, to, to crown Alabama. To quote Denny Green, if you want to crown their ass, crown them. I'm not trying to crown them. But I'm just saying, when I look at that team, my biggest takeaway from Saturday night was just that I just don't know who is going to be the team that can keep up with them offensively and get enough defensive stops where they can potentially win a game. It's Clemson, it's maybe Ohio State, and I just don't see anybody else. Let's switch gears very quickly to Georgia 
Because I do think Georgia uh, is an interesting story in all of this in their own right. And because of the Nick Saban COVID stuff, I didn't really talk about this on Thursday's show. But I think of the teams that we have seen, I think there is no doubt in my mind that there is a clear-cut top three that is miles ahead of everybody else. That is Clemson, that is Alabama, and that is Georgia. Now, maybe you want to throw in Notre Dame. I have not been overwhelmed by Notre Dame early. I think they're a good team. I think they're a solid team. I don't think they can compete even with Georgia, let alone Alabama or Clemson. Again, maybe Ohio State gets into that mix. Maybe Penn State gets into that mix. But when I look at things in the big picture, I do think Georgia's closer to the Alabama uh, Clemson tier than they are even to Florida, Penn State, Michigan, those type teams. And I think they're really good. And I think it's just unfortunate that this happened to be the year that they got Alabama in the regular season. But it's kind of the same old story with Georgia. I feel like I've done this rant on this show four, five, six times over the last couple years because it's the same story. The defense is great. The run game is great. The kicking game is great. Their skill position, wide receivers are phenomenal. Tight end, phenomenal. They just don't have the guy at quarterback. And I will say in Kirby Smart's defense, I'm not going to sit up here and crush Kirby Smart because I think he realized that was an issue. He fired his old offensive coordinator. He brought in a new offensive coordinator. And they took not one, but two quarterback transfers over the course of this offseason. They took Jamie Newman, who transferred from Wake Forest. They took JT Daniels, who transferred from USC. Just one problem. Jamie Newman opted out of the season. JT Daniels wasn't able to practice during the fall or not at full speed because he was coming off a knee surgery and an injury. Maybe we'll see him in the coming weeks. The kid Dewan Mathis, who was projected to be the starter in their place, uh, is a dual threat guy who just wasn't ready. Any Arkansas fan listening saw him in week one. He wasn't very good. No disrespect. That's just the reality. And so you're stuck with Stetson Bennett. And Stetson Bennett is a great story, by the way. Former walk-on, goes to JUCO, goes back to uh, Georgia, gets a scholarship, earns his spot on the team. But there is a reason that he was a walk-on in the first place, and that's not a knock. That is just a reality. Finishes the game 18 of 40, two touchdowns, three interceptions, I had a friend who was at the game reference the batted balls, the balls batted down at the line of scrimmage. It's just clear that he has never seen anything close to the size and speed and athleticism of Alabama. I would argue to the Tennessee fans that are listening, you know this. I think Kirby Smart largely tried to hide him against Tennessee two weeks ago. In, which, in a game in which Tennessee had a couple fourth down stops, had a couple big plays that eventually when Jarrett Garantano went full Jarrett Garantano, it ended up costing Georgia or ended up costing Tennessee in a game that was a lot closer than the final score would indicate. And so when I look at Georgia, I don't really blame Kirby Smart because he tried to fix this issue, but the issue remains the same. And that is that they are national championship caliber everywhere other than the quarterback position. And so when I look at this in the bigger picture, I don't think they're going to beat Alabama in an SEC championship game. I think somehow if they get to a playoff, I don't think they can beat Clemson. 
I don't think they can beat Ohio State. And so they're kind of stuck in this purgatory where they're really, 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 really good, but they just can't get over the top to that elite status. And it's not just this year, by the way. Remember last year, SEC championship game against Joe Burrow. 37 to 10 final score against LSU. So it's happened before. Obviously, there were the two losses in the 2018 national championship game and then the following season's SEC title game. And so we're starting to see a trend here, and it's the quarterback play, and it was an issue with Jake Fromm. Now it's an issue with Stetson Bennett. And I'll be honest, I think it's worth having the conversation. Has Georgia already missed their best window to win a national championship under Kirby Smart? I don't know if I believe it. I'm not positive. I think there's an argument to be made on both sides. But if you want to argue that, I could certainly see it. One, Florida is as good as they've been in years, maybe since Urban Meyer has been. They're certainly better than they were when Kirby Smart got there. Kentucky recruiting at a higher level. Tennessee recruiting at a higher level. Not saying those teams are Georgia because they are not to be abundantly clear. But those games aren't as easy. But most importantly, doesn't it feel like the gap with Bama is getting wider, not smaller? Because, I mean, think about it. Two years ago in the national championship game, they were up double digits at halftime. Even when Tua comes in, even when he brings them back, the game still went to overtime, and it still took a second and 26 conversion from Tua to seal the victory. The year after, up 14 in the SEC championship game. Again, they blow it. And so you're coming off those two games where you're right in the mix to what has happened the last two years against Joe Burrow, which I just mentioned, and then last uh, night, Saturday night, against Alabama. And I think the, 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 the gap is widening here, people, because think about it. Say what you want about Nick Saban. I mean, I don't know what you could say that's bad. The guy is a living legend. But Nick Saban has jumped two feet in to this offensive revolutionary football that really started when Lane Kiffin got there as his offensive coordinator four, five, six years ago. I mean, you look at Alabama, they don't even look like the same team, the same, they, they, don't, they don't look like Alabama used to look. It used to be Mark Ingram and Trent Richardson and run the ball and your quarterback never throws the ball more than 10 yards to a tight end. Now you got potentially two first-round wide receivers this year after having two wide receivers last year go in the first round. Alabama has jumped full speed ahead. Alabama has realized you can't win every game 20-17 to 17 in 2020, not only in college football, but even in the SEC. You don't have to be Oklahoma. You can play some defense, but you got to be able to score too. And so Alabama has moved things along. Alabama has moved the goalposts back. LSU last year, as I said, same deal. It was supposed to be a competitive game. Never forget, Georgia came into the SEC championship game last year 11-1. And, and Joe Burrow, 37-10 final score. LSU runs them out of the building in their own home state. And so when I look at Georgia, when I look at Kirby Smart, I don't know what the answer is. Because we've watched this stuff enough to just know that when you go up against a great offense, you can have the best defense in the world, the best uh, coaching staff in the world, the best skill in the world. 
great offensive players make plays and there's nothing you can do about it. I keep mentioning last year with Joe Burrow, and I can't help but think to the night that LSU played at Alabama and beat Bama. And Nick Saban went to the podium. They gave up 46 points, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, Nick Saban's going to go ballistic. And he just kind of sat there and kind of ran his hands through his hair, and he just said, look, they're a really talented team. We did everything right. We had guys in the right position. We as a coaching staff did the best that we could. They just got a lot of guys that can make plays. And I think that's the problem that Georgia's running into. You can do what Georgia did when you play Bo Nix and when you play Jared Garantano. You can't do it against Alabama and all the talent that they have. At some point, like I said with Bama a minute ago, you just got to be able to go score for score with people. You just got to be able to do what Bama did two weeks ago against Ole Miss. And Georgia, year five under Kirby Smart, they still can't do that. And so look, again, this isn't all his fault. He brought in two transfer quarterbacks and neither of them can play right now. I understand not all of this is Kirby Smart's fault, but at a certain point, I do think he kind of has to wrap his head around and commit to really opening things up if he wants to win on the national scale. Because Alabama is not going back to three yards in a cloud of dust. Ohio State under Ryan Day certainly is not going back to that, and they got dudes on defense as well. Clemson, we know where Clemson's at, and if you've seen their backup quarterback, he might have a bigger arm than Trevor Lawrence. Now, I'm not saying he's Trevor Lawrence, but that offense ain't going to slow down when Trevor Lawrence leaves a year from now. And so Georgia wants to be defined by winning national championships. They want to be defined by how they compete with the elite of the elite of the elite of the elite. And I think the gap between the elite of the elite of the elite, which is Bama, Clemson, Ohio State, I think the gap with Georgia is widening, not shrinking, And it stinks because they're a really good program, but I just don't know what the answer is. All right, really quick, last topic I want to get to break. After the break, reminder, I'm going to talk Tennessee-Kentucky, which I thought was a fascinating game. I do want to talk a little bit about Clemson because I had an interesting thought on them. And I'll probably wrap on a little Florida State, which is a great, great, great story. But um, I do want to talk a little bit about the Arkansas Razorbacks. And the Arkansas Razorbacks, um, it was funny. I went through a lot of the stuff that I did around this time last year, and I literally made a point to say, like, I don't generally talk about the Arkansas Razorbacks, but they are so bad that I have to talk about this team. And so I was talking about them at this time last year. And for people who don't remember, they were abysmal. They went 2-10 and last year, 0-8 in the SEC. Chad Morris was fired. Year before, 2-10, in the SEC in Chad Morris's first year. The year before that was Brett Bielema's last year where they went 4-8 and 1-7 in the SEC. And so you fast forward that to 2020. They are now 2-2 two and two, and in a 10-game SEC schedule, 2-2 two and two in the SEC. They are currently ahead of LSU in the SEC standings. And if we're being honest... And let's all be honest here, people. We're all friends. They should be 3-1 and because they got screwed against Auburn last week. And so I think when you look at Arkansas, a team that I think we all thought was going to go 0-10, maybe 1-9, to be where they are at 2-2 and and they should be 3-1, and I can't help but think one thing. 
this is the best story in college football right now, the Arkansas Razorbacks. And there's other great stories. I think what Florida State is doing is incredible. I think Alabama reviving and rebuilding itself. You know, you look at Coastal Carolina's really good story. BYU's a really good story. I don't know that there is any better story in college football than Arkansas. In terms of the games itself, listen, we all know the deal. The, the, the story is the defense. The story is Barry Odom. For people who don't remember, Barry Odom was Missouri's head coach last year. Didn't really work out. Didn't feel like he was head coach material. But man, can this guy call a defense. Week one against Georgia, I thought they actually played really well. The dam broke late because uh, Arkansas just ran out of gas. But week two, Mississippi State coming off a 44-point performance at LSU. Arkansas holds them to 14 points. They win 21-14. First SEC win in two and a half years. Next week against Auburn, we know what happened. It was a disaster. Auburn shouldn't have won. Last week, this week, they're playing against Ole Miss, coming off a 48-point performance against Nick Saban's D offense. Defense, whatever. Let me, let me start over. 48-point performance against Nick Saban's defense. Arkansas holds them to 21 points, seven turnovers, and even the 21 points is kind of fluky because Ole Miss converted a huge uh, fake punt, which set up a touchdown that shouldn't have been a touchdown. I mean, they basically held Lane Kiffin's offense, which has been scoring 40 a game on everybody, to 14 points. They end up with 21 points, and they win. And so I think this is the best story, not just because of the win-loss record, but because of what I was saying a minute ago. And to really understand, I know I just said, two and a half years since they had won an SEC game. One SEC win since 2017, since the start of 2017. But to me, it goes deeper than that. And let me explain why. Because it wasn't just that Arkansas was losing games, right? It was that they were getting embarrassed at this time last year. And I forgot how bad it was until I went back and looked at some of the final scores. They lost by 41 points to Auburn at home last year. They played Bama the week after Tua got hurt for the first time. So Tua was not playing. They were a 32-point underdog. It was 38-0 at halftime against the backup, who was Mac Jones, who's pretty good going to defend Mac Jones because I just did. They were down 38-0 at halftime, and that was when I went on my infamous Chad Morris has a play sheet the size of Ecuador, and this team can't block or tackle or do the fundamental things. And then finally there was the game against Western Kentucky where they got smoked by Western Kentucky, which led to Chad Morris getting fired. And for people who don't remember the details on that one, I looked it up. 35-7 to they were down at halftime against Western Kentucky. And so when I look back at Arkansas, I think it's very fitting to look back and then look forward to what's based on what Sam Pittman, the new head coach, said at his press conference on Saturday after the win against Ole Miss. What Sam Pittman said was point blank, people from Arkansas are a proud people and this team did not make them proud in previous years. That was Sam Pittman's quote, not mine, but I thought it was very fitting when you look back at what Arkansas was, 
what they are now. And so in addition to the Barry Odom stuff, which I just mentioned, I got to give so much credit to Sam Pittman. If Arkansas as a team is the best story, Sam Pittman, early frontrunner for SEC Coach of the Year, early frontrunner for National Coach of the Year. What this guy has done with this program is incredible. Because to take over a program in an offseason like this, with no spring practice, you don't get to know your guys, no fall camp, and to have them playing like this is unbelievable. But really, it even goes back further to when this guy was hired. Because think about it, and if you don't follow college football day-to-day, let me give you a quick rundown. Arkansas fires Chad Morris. They do so in hopes of getting a jump on everybody else that might be looking for a new head coach. There's a time where they think they're getting Lane Kiffin. They go through all the other candidates. I believe at one point Mike Norvell was a hot name who's now at Florida State. I believe Mike Leach at one point was at least in the conversation. They get none of them, and they end up with this guy, Sam Pittman, who has never been a college head coach, who was an offensive line coach at Georgia. And I'm not going to lie. And I know this, and Arkansas fans, don't be offended, but it's the truth. You guys, for a moment in time, were felt like the laughing stock of college football. I'm not saying that's fair, but I've had people in the media from Arkansas tell me, like, how did we end up with this offensive line coach? Well, as it turns out, here's why. It's because all the players who have ever played for him went to bat for him and said, this is the guy. This is the dude that is going to change the program around. Everybody loves him. Everybody respects him. Guys will play hard for him. And oh, by the way, which has been proven, he doesn't have an ego in who gets the credit. And so he went out and got two really good coordinators, Barry Odom and Kendall Bryles. And Barry Odom's defense is phenomenal this year. And Sam Pittman is the guy who's overseeing it all. But he's the head coach and he's getting all the credit. And oh, by the way, the same guy that got hired only when Lane Kiffin went to Ole Miss Only when Mike Norvell went to Florida State and Mike Leach doesn't appear as though he seriously considered Arkansas. Well, guess what? We thought it was going to be Lane Kiffin at Arkansas. Sam Pittman just beat him. We thought it was going to be Mike Leach maybe at Arkansas. Sam Pittman just beat him. Okay, I don't know if we ever thought Mike Leach was going to be the coach at Arkansas, but whatever. Ole Miss and Mississippi State, we all thought they nailed their coaching hires, that they were the greatest, and Sam Pittman just beat both of them. And so I just give so much credit to this guy for believing in himself, for believing in this program, and for, you know what else, for saying it can be done and it can be done right now. Because the crazy thing about Chad Morris was every time he lost a game, oh, you know, this is a process, it's going to take time, we need more time. Sam Pittman came in and said, I think I can win with this team right now. And he has Arkansas 2-2, two and two, should be 3-1, and one, and they are, in my opinion, the best story in college football right now. All right, I do want to take a quick break. We're already at the 35-minute mark. Uh, I am going to come back here in a moment. We'll talk a little Tennessee, Kentucky. We will talk a little Clemson, maybe even a little Florida State, more after the break. All right, 
I'm back, uh, and I just thought, uh, I did it last week, and I thought it was really nice to just kind of have something to break up the show right in the middle. So much going on on a busy Monday. I just thought it'd be fun to break things up, decided to do it again this week. We'll probably do so going forward on these Monday episodes, just because I'm talking long, it's a lot to listen to, gives you guys a nice breaking point, but with that said... Uh, let's get into some of the other bigger stories of the college football weekend. And I don't think there was a bigger story that we have not hit on yet than Kentucky going into Tennessee and getting the victory. Congrats to the Wildcats. 34-7 to is the final score. And it was so surreal for so many reasons. First off, for people who do not know the history, uh, Kentucky does not go to Knoxville very often and win, Okay. Last time they did it was 1984, okay? I am in my mid-30s right now, and I wasn't even born the last time that Kentucky went to Knoxville and got a win. There's not many things happening in sports right now that I can say that I was not alive to see, but up until Saturday, Kentucky winning in Knoxville was not one of them, and if you really think about it, it means that basically anybody under the age of 40 does not remember Kentucky winning at Neyland Stadium. That's exactly what happened. And it's not only that they won, it's that they won convincingly. And by the way, shout out to all the Kentucky fans that got in my mentions, got in my DMs because I picked against Kentucky this week. You guys were right. I was wrong. Not only did Tennessee lose, but Kentucky won convincingly. A lot of things to get into in terms of the game itself. Obviously, do want to start from the Wildcat perspective to the victors go the spoils. And it was just a complete team effort. I mean, I don't think there's anything to say other than that. First of all, the defense has been unbelievable the last two weeks. And it's crazy, right? Because I, I still go back to that old Miss game two weeks ago. For people who don't remember all of Kentucky's schedule, narrow loss to Auburn in a game where Auburn got a fluky call go their way, which completely changed the game. They lose to Ole Miss in week two. And I think at that point, a lot of people, oh, Kentucky was overrated. They're not very good. And I remember saying both on this podcast and in an article I wrote for Kentucky Sports Radio, I said, look, it's not that Kentucky's bad. They're beating themselves. And if you go back to that Ole Miss game, there was the A.J. Rose situation where he's running towards the end zone. He starts celebrating before he gets there. A, uh, a touchdown ends up getting taken off the board. Uh, there's a missed PAT in overtime, which ends up costing them the game. Uh, there's penalties, there's sloppy play, and the defense, which is so vaunted, so many highly rated recruits, simply wasn't getting the job done. I dropped this stat on Saturday, but Kentucky's defense was the only defense in the SEC that through the first two weeks had not forced a single turnover. That's not good. And it was reflective of why Kentucky was struggling. It wasn't because they were overrated. It wasn't because they stunk. It wasn't because Terry Wilson, their quarterback, stunk. It was because they weren't, weren't doing the little things that you need to do to win. They were essentially beating themselves. When you have too many penalties, when you're missing PATs, no disrespect to the kicker, but it's a reality. When you have a running back pulling up short to celebrate and the ball gets stripped or he gets tackled, excuse me, and then he fumbles a few plays later, you're not going to win games. And so to see the defense from that day when they did not have a single turnover through two games to where we are now where they had 10 turnovers in the last two games, unbelievable. Six against Mississippi State. Poor K.J. Costello basically will never be a starting quarterback in college football again thanks to Kentucky. And it might be the same for Jarek Garantano. 
Six turnovers against Mississippi State. Four turnovers against Tennessee. Obviously, two pick sixes in the second quarter, which completely changes the game and frankly completely changed maybe the entire conversation about Tennessee football as well, which we will get into a minute. And it's a direct reflection of this defense. They were never bad. They were never overrated. They didn't stink. They just needed to lock in and do the things that they were supposed to do. Now, did I think they'd get 10 turnovers in two weeks? No, but I did think they were better. I did think part of it was a reflection of Ole Miss is this crazy offense that nobody has figured out until Arkansas on Saturday. And so a lot of the credit for the success obviously goes to the defense. When you have two pick sixes, when you force four turnovers, you're going to win a lot of games. That's what Kentucky did. I also want to give credit to Terry Wilson. And for people who do not know the Terry Wilson narrative, and I don't claim to be any Kentucky football expert, I'm not Nick Roush from Kentucky Sports Radio, I'm not Justin Rowland from Rivals who, who cover this team day in and day out, but I understand there's been frustration with Terry Wilson over the course of his career. I understand he's not the most dynamic player in America. He's not the most dynamic quarterback in America, but I also understand that as many fans have pointed out to me, the frustrating part is how the plays are called under the head or under the uh, offensive coordinator Eddie Grant. And so part of it, yes, I understand you want more from the quarterback position at times. But part of it is Eddie Grant the offensive coordinator opening things up. And a funny thing happened when Kentucky got a lead on Saturday. They opened things up. They let Terry Wilson do what he is capable of doing, and he makes a few plays with his arm. Again, I'm not calling him Trevor Lawrence, but I thought that was one of the better games that he has played throughout his career thanks to the confidence of the defense, of the run game, and of, of, the, of the coaching staff to let him throw the ball around a little bit. A couple nice uh, uh, throws to the tight end. He just looked really good. And when I look back on his career and what he's done, I do feel like the guy's kind of getting a raw deal. And maybe it's because I know so many writers who cover Kentucky, but they all brought up the same point on Saturday, and I thought it was a great point, and I'm not claiming I'm the only one that said it, but look at this guy's resume. I mean, I don't know all the ins and outs of Kentucky football history, but who has done more quarterback than Terry Wilson? Now, Tim Couch was better statistically Jared Lorenzen, rest in peace to, to an incredible guy there, was maybe better statistically. But think about what Terry Wilson has done. Terry Wilson went into Florida and beat Florida and did a losing streak that was at 30-plus years at that point. Terry Wilson went into Knoxville and won against UT for the first time since 1984. Terry Wilson was the starting quarterback of a 10-win team two seasons ago. Terry Wilson won both starts that he made last year before getting injured late in that second game against Eastern Michigan. And oh, by the way, on top of everything else, it's what I just said a minute ago. You not only beat Tennessee, you smack them around. And that was the crazy part. And this is where it goes to Kentucky, a complete team effort as they just made Tennessee quit. And I know part of it was the, the turnovers, and we're going to get into all that in a second. But they physically manhandled Tennessee. They physically made them quit. Tennessee gave up in the middle of the second or middle of the third quarter, excuse me, and the game was essentially over at that point. An incredible effort by Kentucky, a team effort by Kentucky. Uh, and congrats to all the fans who are obviously riding a high after a historic win in Knoxville. First time in many of the people's lives who listen to this show. 
I do want to talk about things now from the Tennessee perspective. Uh, obviously, not nearly as good, not nearly as exciting. Um, and there's some real questions. There are definitely some real questions when it comes to Tennessee football. And we're going to get into Jarrett Garantano in a second. But it's kind of crazy because I talked about this a few minutes ago with Georgia. And I know it's hard to think about this in this context after what happened on Saturday. But I do think that Tennessee is almost like a really, really, really poor man's Georgia from this perspective. I actually think they're pretty good in most spots outside of the quarterback position. Now, they're not national championship good like Georgia is. But you look at that offensive line. They were awesome two weeks ago against Missouri. They were awesome against South Carolina in week one. The running backs were awesome those first couple weeks. The defense, I think, has actually held up pretty well. I mean, yeah, Kentucky scored 34, but 14 of them were on the other side of the football. Georgia had a bunch of short fields the week before. I think the defense is doing fine, but they can't get any help at all from the quarterback. And so, look, we do have to get into the quarterback play. We do have to talk about Jared Garantano. And you guys know my general stance on crushing college kids on this show. I don't like to do it. It's not what I'm about. I'm not here to poke fun at an 18, 19, 20-year-old kid doing the absolute best that they can under the circumstances that they've been put in. But you also can I mean, look, I know I'm not, like, I'm not exactly uh, breaking the Da Vinci Code here, but like Jared Garantano is the reason that Tennessee lost on Saturday, and he's a reason that the game was as ugly as it was against Georgia. And so as I look at the situation at Tennessee, um, you know, one, I just feel bad for Jared Garantano. I certainly feel bad for his teammates because, and I know this is going to sound super cliche and obvious, but you could just see the life come out of that team after the second uh, pick six where uh, the, the linemen weren't blocking as hard, the running backs weren't running as hard, the defense had a lot of mojo taken out of them. And you could just see that there was just no energy left in the team. There was obviously no energy left in the stadium. Um, And I do feel bad for Jared Garantano because, like I said, he is doing the best that he can, but he is a guy that is just a completely different player when he is going up against a really good defense like a Georgia, like a Kentucky, as opposed to a few weeks ago against Missouri where it wasn't uh, the same caliber of player on the defensive side of the football. Now, I'll also say in Jared Garantano's defense – Like, I don't think all of this is on him. I think some of it's on the coaching staff. And you guys know I have been uh, impressed by Jeremy Pruitt. I like what he's done with this program. I like the toughness that he instilled for a time during that eight-game win streak. But I would also say, man, like, 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 like Jared Garantano is a fifth-year senior. He's been there since the Butch Jones days, okay? You know what you're getting out of Jared Garantano and the fact that this is year three and he still appears to be your best option, not a great reflection of what you're doing in that quarterback's room if you're Jeremy Pruitt and the coaching staff. By the way, kind of random, all the uh, all the former Saban assistants that were defensive guys, none of them can develop a quarterback. Not Kirby Smart, not Will Muschamp, not Jeremy Pruitt. But when I look at Tennessee, again, the frustrating part is all the other pieces are there. 
and say what you want about Kirby Smart. I talked about it a minute ago. He brought in two different transfers to compete with the guys that he recruited. He said, if I can't get this right in the recruiting game, I'm just going to go let somebody else evaluate, let somebody else develop, and I'll come pluck them off. That's how we got Jamie Nixon from Wake, Jamie Newman, excuse me, from Wake Forest, and JT Daniels from USC. It hasn't worked out. But the bottom line remains, it's not as though Kirby Smart's not trying. I mean, he's trying everything. He had Justin Fields. He screwed that up, but he's trying. And I look at the situation at Tennessee, and Tennessee fans correct me if I'm just wrong on this, but what's going on with the, the, the quarterback recruiting? Especially, as I just mentioned, in this era of the, the transfer portal. Think about how many guys have been in the transfer portal over the last couple of years. Jamie Newman, I just mentioned. Uh, JT Daniels, I just mentioned. Sean Robinson, who's a kid at Missouri right now. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> Justin Fields, obviously, is one that comes to mind. Terry Wilson is a former JUCO guy that started his career at the University of Oregon. I mean, I'm just thinking here off the top of my head, I'm just looking at guys who have been available since uh, Jeremy Pruitt and his staff got to got to, um, you know, got to Tennessee, and the fact that they haven't brought in any of those guys that I can think of to compete with Jared Garantano, what is that about, man? Because the thing is, the quarterback position at the end of the day is no different than any other position, right? You bring in six, seven running backs, and you let them compete, and the best one sees the field. You have two, three, four offensive tackles in your program. The best ones get on the field, linebacker, corner, safety, kicker, punter. Kick returner, punt returner. You let guys compete for the job. And I'm not saying that Jeremy Pruitt isn't having guys compete and maybe Jared Garantano is the best option, but that's a reflection on the coach. At some point, bring in some other guys, let them compete. And if they're not good enough, then you're doing something wrong. And apparently you're doing something wrong because they don't have anybody better than Jared Garantano. And so what I would say is, as I look forward to what is going on for the rest of the season at Tennessee, I'll just tell you this. I don't know what they do at quarterback, obviously, right? Do they stick with Jarek Garantano? They got a freshman who they seem to like. I would assume they play Bama this coming weekend, and they're not going to throw the freshman into the fire. But when I look at this entire situation in the bigger picture, I just think this is a crossroads moment for the Tennessee football program because I thought that we were past Tennessee doing what they did on Saturday, which is absolutely quit. We saw it last year against Georgia State. We saw them fall apart against BYU where I would not say they quit at all, but it was the reality of losing that game. We saw them lose to Florida at Florida in a game that I felt like they quit. And then they turned a corner. They played well against Georgia. They didn't win. They played well, though. And they started winning games. And we thought we were past this mindset of, uh, accepting mediocrity, but that's what it looked like on Saturday. You know what Saturday looked like to me against Kentucky? And this is a credit to Kentucky, by the way. This is not a disrespect to Kentucky. But that looked like Georgia State. That looked like the Butch Jones era. That looked like the Derek Dooley era, where when something bad happened, the players all looked around and said, we're Tennessee. Bad stuff is supposed to happen we're not going to win this game, we quit. And they did quit, and I know I'm not alone. I, li <laughs> I listen to some of the crazy Tennessee post game where guys are leaving their wives or their wives are leaving them or whatever. Like, I know this is how Tennessee fans feel, so don't tell me I'm going too hard on Tennessee, but they quit, and that's, this is a crossroads moment right now. I'm not saying you got to beat Bama, but what I am saying is you got to pick yourself off, off the mat and say, I am not going to accept what has happened the last two games. 
we are going to fight, and they better fight because they got a tough schedule. For people who do not know, they still have Alabama this weekend, still have Texas A&M, they still have Florida, they still have Arkansas, who's really good, and they still have Auburn, who stinks, but, you know, obviously the way Tennessee's playing, nothing's guaranteed, so very, very, very tough schedule for Tennessee coming up, starting with Alabama this weekend, but this is a turning point moment for Tennessee. Are you going to quit? Are you going to feel bad for yourself? Are you going to feel sorry for yourself? Are you going to pick yourself off, up off the mat and get going? It'll be fascinating to watch. A couple quick thoughts before I get out of here. First of all, I'm going to give a shout out to a weird team. How about the number one team in the country, the Clemson Tigers? Because when I look at Clemson, okay, a couple things come to mind. They won, for those of you who didn't see, 73-7 to final score against Georgia Tech. And it'd be easy to just kind of sit there and say, yeah, well, whatever, it's Georgia Tech, who cares? But first of all, 73-7. to And it was a game where, like, Georgia Tech plays people tough. Georgia Tech beat Florida State. Georgia Tech beat Louisville. Clubs had just beat them 73-7. to they were up 52-7 to at halftime. Trevor Lawrence, a Mac Jones-esque 24 of 32, 400 yards, five touchdowns. He looked like the definitive number one pick in this upcoming NFL draft. And so I bring it up not because, oh, Clemson beat a team that they're supposed to, but how they did it under the circumstances that they did it. And I'll tell you why. As you may know, a little bit of a betting man. Don't go crazy. Always responsible. Please gamble responsibly. But this was a spot where I thought Georgia Tech could get Clemson. Georgia Tech plays hard. They're not great, but they do play hard. And Clemson was coming off a very emotional game against Miami. They win convincingly. Now they got to play a noon kickoff in front of 20% capacity in Atlanta. And I'm sitting there saying like, well, crap, man. Like, I'm pretty sure Clemson's going to come out flat. It'll probably be like 21 to 10 at halftime. They'll probably win like 37-14, or I guess in theory you can't score four points unless there's two safeties. But, you know, they, they win something unimpressively. But these are the games that Clemson has always struggled with before. They don't always lose them, but they struggle. These noon games, early games, coming off an emotional win. And just to look it up, just to make sure I wasn't going crazy, that is in fact the truth, okay? Remember last year? North Carolina, Mac Brown, first-year head coach. Tried to go for two, lost the game. Clemson wins 21-20 to early season game on the road against a team that they had no business being close with. The year before, Clemson played Syracuse. If you remember, that was actually the year that Kelly Bryant, if you remember, left the team four games into the season and it was Trevor Lawrence's first official start as the Clemson quarterback. But in that game, Kelly Bryant leaves. Clemson plays Syracuse. And they hold on for dear life to win at the last second. 2017, they lose to a bad Syracuse team that ended up with a losing record. On the road. Short week, they're playing on a Friday, game they should have won, come out flat, end up losing. And then 2016, they lose to Pitt in a noon kickoff 
in a game that no one saw them losing. And so when I look at the Clemson game, listen, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spend uh, you know a, a year talking about how great this 73 to seven win was because it was still at the end of the day uh, against Syracuse. But I do think it's important relative to the conversation about Clemson as we start to look at who are these elite teams when you, in a game where you would be excused for coming out flat, where you would be excused for not playing your best football after an emotional win, road game, against the team that you know you're going to beat. Instead, they come out 52-7 to at the half. They win 73-7. to all right, last little topic before we get out of here. Just real quick, just, 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 just a real quick one, I promise. I just want to give a quick shout-out to the Florida State Seminoles. And if you remember, about four or five Mondays ago, the ACC opened up before anybody else in college football. They opened up uh, on September 5th, I believe. And Florida State lost to Georgia Tech. And I did this big, typical Torres rambling you know, thing about Florida State and like when I was a kid from 1990, whatever it was, 1988 to 2000, they finished in the top four every single year for 12 straight years. And I could not believe that Florida State had fallen as far as they had against Georgia Tech. And it really didn't get better. They got smoked by Miami. If you remember, they also were down early at Jacksonville State. But in a credit to them, it appears as though Florida State has turned a corner. So shout out to Florida State for beating what was the number five ranked team in the country. And I don't believe North Carolina is the fifth best team, but we just ran out of teams to rank. Uh, they beat the fifth best team in the country, North Carolina. Final score, 31 to 28. So how about this from Florida State, right? So Florida State, embarrassing through the first couple weeks of the season. And then that Jacksonville State game, they turn things around. You're like, okay, it's Jacksonville State, whatever. Then don't know if you noticed, they actually played pretty well against Notre Dame last week. I'm not saying like Notre Dame's a juggernaut because they struggled like all hell against Louisville. But Florida State goes to Louisville, goes to Notre Dame, excuse me. Final score, 42 to 26. They put up points. And this team has been completely different. Since they changed quarterbacks, they went to a kid named Jordan Travis. He actually played really well against Notre Dame in the game in South Bend. Um, If you watch that game, he threw for 204 yards, almost rushed for 100 yards, and they look completely different with him at quarterback. Now listen, in the big picture, is Florida State back? Of course not. Did they get lucky on Saturday night? They did. They had a, a pick six return for a touchdown. They had some crazy stuff happen. And then didn't score a single point in the second half and still survive to win. But I still think it is a credit and a testament to this program how far they've come in how short of an amount of time. And I'll tell you this, I'm just excited to see them going forward because the problem with Florida State for years has been them not being able to figure out the quarterback position. But now they got it figured out. And obviously there's some tough games ahead with Clemson, even Louisville this weekend, despite what happened at Notre Dame last last week. Louisville can score points, um, but I'm fascinated to watch them because I do think the quarterback play is better, and I'll be curious to see if they can pick up a few wins late in the season. Not saying they're uh, you know uh, national championship caliber, but I do think they're going to be worth watching. All right, so I think that's it for this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I have gone on long enough, considering that it was a pretty quiet Saturday. Uh, I think I got you through your Monday afternoon. 
Um, before we get out of here, just want to remind everybody, please make sure that you're subscribed. You can do it on iTunes. The Podcast Addict app, if you have an Android, Podcast Addict is the way to go. Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, please make sure that you are, in fact, subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Uh, And make sure you're following on social, at Aaron Torres Pod on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. Uh, Make sure you're following the YouTube channel as well. Make sure you find me on Facebook at Aaron Torres Writer. And that's all for today's show. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. I'll be back on Tuesday with another episode. I appreciate your guys' support, and I hope everybody has a great Monday.